Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. How can RIAs and other types of financial advisors use opportunity zones in their clients' portfolios? There's quite an opportunity there, I like to think, and my guest today thinks that as well. Here to discuss that topic and more with me today is Barrett Lindbergh. He is co-founder and partner at Savoy Equity Partners, and Barrett's joining us today from Dallas, Texas. Barrett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thanks, Jimmy. It's great to be here on your first recorded podcast of the year. I'm, I'm excited to join you and to talk with a, a fellow expert in, in Opportunity Zone. It's rare to talk to another nerd about this stuff, but but I like it. <laughs> I am a self-proclaimed OZ nerd. Thanks for taking notice of that. Uh, well, Barrett, I wanted to talk with you today about a couple of different undertapped sources of Opportunity Zone equity that may be poised to experience some growth over the next few years. Um, one of those is banks. Uh, we'll turn our attention to banks in a few minutes here, but I, I wanted to focus the the bulk of the episode, or at least the first portion of the episode, on the wealth management channel or the financial advisor community or RIAs, essentially, registered investment advisors, and discuss the opportunity and the challenge there. Uh, RIAs as a group command a heck of a lot of capital, privately held capital, across this country, uh, but they've been a tough group to tap into uh, to get in front of them in terms of having them reposition some of their clients' portfolios to deploy into qualified opportunity funds. There's a little bit of a, of a learning curve there with RIAs, as with everybody. Uh, they're also pressed for time. Uh, it's also a big ask to get them to step into a new type of investment vehicle that comes with some headline risk, um, sad to say, which are opportunity zones. Uh, how, but but enough of me blabbering away. I want to hear from you, Barrett. What, what do you see as being the big opportunity and the challenge with that group, RIAs and other types of financial advisors in terms of getting them to buy into opportunity zones as a good portfolio construction tool for their clients? Well, I think the opportunity... Thank you for such a great summary. I, I think the opportunity is... Um, for for guys like me is there's a whole bunch of of dollars out there that have not come into the opportunity zone space for the RIA folks out there i think that this is uh, an enormously tax advantaged way to invest in real estate that's being ignored uh and and shouldn't be right the at least as i understand it the mandate for a lot of the RIAs is to give their clients the all the tools available uh, for investment and then help their clients choose the right way forward. Um, and in order to do so, they need to understand OZ. Now, I think in 2018, 2019, and early 2020, likely the right decision for many RIAs was to avoid Opportunity Zone. Before all of the legislation was very clear, before the IRS provided specific guidance, uh, RIAs were probably right to say, wait, we don't have all the guidance yet. Um, I'm going to keep my job and I'm going to keep recommending IBM for these guys, right? That's the blue chip and let's let's stay on that path. 
But now that we have very clear guidance, uh, we have very clear investment choices for folks within the Opportunity Zone system, I think that it's wise for RIAs to understand this tool that's available. Now, does that mean that they need to push their clients all in on Opportunity Zone or that every client is a fit for this? Absolutely not. But does it mean that there's a level of education that that RAs or wealth managers or or anyone um, should have about Opportunity Zone? I, certainly, now I'm very biased, but, but I believe yes. Uh, people need to understand this stuff and how it fits in in certain people's portfolios. Yeah, and just just to clarify one point you made, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM is kind of the uh, the 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 saying, the old mantra that that you were responding to there. And I think that that's true in a lot of cases with RIAs. RIAs are very pressed for time. They they spend a lot of their time talking with clients, uh, constructing portfolios, reacting to the markets. They don't always have time to re-educate themselves on a brand new type of investment vehicle, a brand new tax policy that is opportunity zones. I also like to kind of compare opportunity zones with 1031 exchanges sometimes. I think the the fact of the matter is 1031s are also a great destination for for many um, qualified investors that that would be eligible for opportunity zone investing. 1031s have been around for a hundred years, so if if you're an RIA that's less than a hundred years old, <laughs> you've probably been doing 1031s just about your whole life, and and you're very familiar with them. Your customers, your clients are very familiar with them. You start looking at opportunity zones. Maybe you've heard of opportunity zones, but it's just it's just a big learning curve that really hasn't been cleared by a lot of folks in that financial advisor industry. And you know, it's it part of it is just the newness of the program poses a challenge. And I think it just is going to take some time. It's going to take a push by folks like us, Barrett, you being a partner at Savoy Equity Partners, and and other types of sponsors and project developers, me as a podcast host and, and owner of the Opportunity DB platform to kind of push that message out there. Um, but for those who have gotten the message and those who are valuing opportunity zones for what they can do for their clients, how should they think about opportunity zones for their clients' portfolios, do you think? Well, I think step back just another minute to understand how the RIAs uh, work a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a client of an RIA is only going to get the message about Opportunity Zone in in one of two ways. So they're either going to read about it in in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or somewhere else and say, this is a good idea for me. And then they're going to ask their wealth manager, who's going to internally ask you know, for more education on it and get hooked up with someone who does it. Or someone like you or I is going to educate the alternative investment manager at an RIA, who then has to educate the private wealth manager within that RIA firm, who then has to educate the guy who just had a liquidity event, that this is one of the tools available to him. So I think that there's there's two ways that this gospel gets spread. Um, and, and both of them are, you know, fairly low likelihood and have a lot of friction involved. And so I think that um, the only way to like expedite the process is to really broadly talk about it and hope that number one, more individuals just start hearing about it. 
and start asking their wealth managers or at the RIA about what is this thing. And that will get more folks to start asking people like us, hey, what is this thing? How do we how do we do it? What is uh, how do we get educated? Um, so I think that's the only way. And then people start to understand, is this for me or, or not? Uh, assuming the right educational resources are out there, which guys like you do a great job to, to push the education. Um, so go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I took us off track. No, that's good. My question is, how should they think about OZs for their clients' portfolios? Yeah. If you're an RIA and you're finally buying into opportunity zones. What's the next step there? How should they think about OZs for their clients' portfolios? Do they do they tag the clients that they know have frequent liquidity events and get their clients to buy in? What what portion of their portfolios should should be allocated to OZs potentially? Maybe maybe this, we're getting too granular here, but just no. at a high level, I guess. I, you know, I, how, how should they think about it? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. So I think number one, is somebody having an enormous liquidity event? Right? Um, are they selling a company for and having a, a generational? You know, selling it for for ten or fifty or a hundred million dollars? Well, okay, I think maybe part of that strategy, de- depending on the person's age, or was it in a trust, or how did it happen? But maybe this should be part, OZ should be part of the strategy, right? And and talk that through. Uh, that should be at least part of the conversation and part of the modeling. Um, or is this a person who regularly has capital gains? Are they a really active stock trader? Do they get paid in in restricted stock units? Uh, are they a hedge fund or private equity guy? And most of their comp every year comes in capital gains. Um, you know, so all these things need to play into the conversation. Um, but if if someone doesn't understand it, then it's never part of the conversation in the first place. Um, so, but I think those are kind of the ideal people who need to be thinking about it as part of their overall wealth planning. And you at Savoy Equity Partners, you have been able to somewhat successfully tap into the RIA market. What's been your MO to date in terms of getting in front of RIAs and the clients that they serve? Sure. And I would say, well, 90% 90% of our investment has just been from from high net worth folks. Some of those people have been connected with us through their wealth manager or um you know someone like that who's giving them financial advice and then we've created a relationship with them and then they've ended up in a deal. Um and so you know the the connection with them a lot of times is we're not necessarily educating the financial professional, we're educating the individual. And so we're skipping that step of having to educate the the wealth manager or the the guy doing the allocation into private investments or alternative investments who then educates the wealth manager who then educates the the investor themselves. And so you oftentimes so if if somebody's represented by an RIA, do you go through the RIA and have the RIA get yeah, so deals are your funds on their platform, or do you just get tied in directly with the end investor? Yeah, one of theirs? one of our big investors uh, is an OZ fund, like a, a institutional OZ fund, okay. and most of their investment comes from RIAs. Uh, a large majority comes from RIAs, and so they have developed relationships over the last four years with these RIAs. And the way that they've done that is build relationships with the guy who is in charge of alternative investments. And that's usually one guy, even at a firm of that controls a hundred billion dollars, 
there's one guy who's in charge of alternative investments. Got so b- build the relationship with him. Teach him everything about Opportunity Zone. Um, you know, educate him, give him all the tools. And then that one guy is responsible for teaching, uh, just like we talked about earlier, uh, who is the right person for OZ investment, big liquidity event, paid in capital gains, whatever it may be. And so now he's teaching his individual wealth managers who's the right person and here's what OZ is and how it works and why it's a good tool. So there's those multiple layers of education that have to happen before the investment actually comes back into their OZ fund and then they allocate it to someone like me. Um, And so it's much more time consuming than maybe the normal investment cycle of, you know, hey, Jimmy, you've got an OZ fund personally, or hey, you've got capital gains burning a hole in your pocket, you know, and, and we've got another deal coming up. Right, right. And I think, um, you know, one, one of the other challenges with with getting RIAs to invest, you know, Zs is they're oftentimes not accessible to the RIA. And by that, I mean, RIAs oftentimes are looking at a particular platform that they're able to invest their clients' money into. Certain yep. Only certain products, investment products are on that platform. Certainly, you know, all of the traditional traditional um, tradable securities like equities and bonds, maybe some private real estate funds pop on there. But if you have kind of this newer program with OZ funds that aren't necessarily listed on those platforms, now the RA has to kind of make an introduction between you, let's say, or another OZ project sponsor or fund sponsor and their high net worth client. Yep. And that kind of is uh, detrimental to the RA himself because the RA is typically uh, charging a percent of AUM, maybe a half point or one point of assets under management. The RA is now sending some of those assets outside of his office, so to speak. And admittedly, he's he's doing a good fiduciary service to his client, a, a, a hooking him up with with somebody directly. Do you see that at all? Is that, is that unfair? No, no, what I'm, what you, I'm fearing there is that part you of nailed the it. As well. um, okay. And so this group that, you know, is, has invested with us, what they've done over the last couple of years is they've gotten onboarded with these RIAs. So they're now one of their improved inv- approved investments. Right. So the investment that the RIA makes with them is still part of the RIA's book. Mm-hmm. So they're still charging a fee for assets under management. The RIA is still tracking that investment, still, you know, making sure that the quarterly reports come in and the valuations come in and, you know, watching that investment and charging a fee to do so rightfully. Um, But then, you know, so that group, that group is the management fee and uh, the assets are still on the system with the RIA. Um, So you're right. A group like mine probably will not raise money at scale from RIAs because of those hurdles. Um, unless we grow significantly, which, Hey, that, that'd be a lot of fun. Sure. Sure. Uh, so a lot of, lot to think about there with, with challenges for the RIA tapping into the RIA marketplace for a, a, a fund sponsor or, or, or project sponsor such as yourself. Um, that's, that's not institutional size yeah. per se with a hundred billion dollars or well i think the reason this stuff's fun to talk about right is because as the oz marketplace grows the pie gets bigger and we all benefit right Mm -hmm. if we're doing more deals as people have more awareness of the stuff um 
it gets better for everybody, right? You have more people that are that are watching your podcast and getting excited about Opportunity Zone in general. I, I'm more excited because there's more opportunity just for transactions, for you know, all, all kinds of things in my world. And every person I call on the phone, I don't have to have the same talk and explain what OZ is and where the where to find the map and things like that. Um, so I, I think more dollars and more attention on the space is good for for every all the participants. Absolutely. Um, well, that's that's a good recap, I think, of of the wealth channel, uh, the wealth management channel, I should say, in the RIA marketplace in terms of getting in front of them, convincing them that this is a great program. Here's why. Here's how it could be of benefit to your high net worth clients. Uh, that is one untapped market that we're all chipping away at, I guess, over time, and things are getting better and better with each passing day. Another untapped source of opportunity zone equity are banks. So Barrett, what can you tell us about banks and particularly with respect to the Community Reinvestment Act that incentivizes banks to invest equity into qualified opportunity funds to gain CRA credit? Is there any news there on that front or any points you want to make there? Yeah, there there is definitely some news, but I'll, I'll bury the lead a little bit. And, you know, any opportunity zone loan that's made. So when we borrow money for construction loans or permanent loans or whatever, the the lender gets CRA credit for making a loan that's in an opportunity zone. So so that's great. CRA credit is something that's essential to banks uh, because they get evaluated every year to make sure that they have it. They get a score that I think is either extraordinary, satisfactory, or unsatisfactory. And that allows them to do business. so as long as they have a satisfactory rating, then they can go about their their daily work. But a lot of banks, if they want to do things like open new branches or make a lot of um, make more loans uh, or expand their lending territory or mergers, um, then they really have to have kind of extraordinary CRA credit. And with this ranking every year, that's a constant push to either do community service or make have a lot of loans in the CRA world or make equity investments in the CRA areas. So banks do that by participating in LIHTC deals. Um, and what we found over the last couple months is, hey, some banks are making equity investments into OZ deals to satisfy the, the CRA component. Um, specifically, a Houston-based bank uh, called Wood Forest, they started a $20 million OZ fund a couple of years ago, and then they just launched a $100 million OZ fund. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. But I didn't really understand the significance behind it. I just kind of thought, well, okay, they're they're doing this and, and that's a neat thing. Um, but then I was on the phone um, with a senator's office the other day, a guy who consults with him on, on banking stuff. And he told me something interesting. He said, um, there's some new CRA rulemaking going on at the White House, and it's likely going to happen. And over the next few weeks, you'll hear about it. And 80% of the banks that currently have a satisfactory rating for CRA credit are going to have an unsatisfactory rating. Whoa, that's a big deal. Because now all these banks that are doing business and not getting hassled by the FDIC and the OCC, um, they're going to have to start making more loans in you know these certain areas, low-income areas and, and other designated spots. 
Um, they're going to have to make more equity investments. They're going to have to do more community service to get back in the good graces of their evaluators just to go about their daily business, not to mention to do mergers, acquisitions, new lending, all this other stuff. It's going to really change the banking system in the short term. And so your thought there is that this should provide some extra incentive for banks to pour more equity into qualified opportunity funds. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. I think that more banks will follow the lead of, of what Wood Forest has done. And by the way, Wood Forest has created a subsidiary called Alivate, and they're actively raising money from other banks into their OZ fund. And and sorry, sorry to interrupt. I did have Alivate on my podcast awesome. uh, a, a few weeks back, and I'll make sure I link to that episode in the show notes for today's episode. If anybody wants to give that a listen, they were they were tremendous uh, guests over there. Well, I think that they might uh, really exceed their goals of $100 million if this passes in a few weeks, because I think banks are going to be really, really uh, nervously looking for more ways to gain CRA credit quickly if yeah. if this rulemaking change happens. Um, it, a little bit shocking, but yeah, it's not necessarily bad for the OZ world. But I don't know if it's a great rule, but hey, I don't make the rules. I don't know if it's a great rule either. I don't know enough about it. And it sounds like it might be bad news for banks, but maybe good news for OZs, as as you mentioned. Good news for qualified opportunity funds and the investment projects that those QOFs deploy capital into. And well, speaking of deploying capital into OZ deals, I wanted to hear a little bit more about you, Barrett, and your firm, Savoy Equity Partners. Uh, about your OZ deals, I guess a two-part question for you. Why did you start working in Opportunity Zones? And could you give me some examples of some of the deals that you're working on currently? Yeah. Well, always love talking about myself. So here we go. Um, You know, I've been in real estate for 15 years, bought my first deal 10 years ago with my wife and my mother-in-law was the money behind it. And it was a little eight unit deal and fixed it up. And we just kind of organically grew and started doing bigger deals, 13 units, then 65, and then 115. And, um, you know, what we found though, is in Dallas, as the market got hotter and hotter in order to make good returns or for the deals to pencil well on the front end, we had to do kind of some weirder stuff. And so we learned historic tax credits, we learned something called fractured condo deconversion. We started using all these different tools. So we were comfortable going into the weeds. And um, we were also comfortable doing really big gut renovations. So there's a part of Dallas just northeast of the Bishop Arts District called uh, kind of the Lake Cliff neighborhood. It's actually a neighborhood that never had a name because it was so blighted and vacant. Um, but it's kind of a three block by five block area with a bunch of crime and they're really problematic. And we'd always looked at it and said that that would be a great neighborhood because it's so close to so many good things. It's right by downtown. It's right by Lake Cliff Park. It's right by the new deck park by the zoo. We would love to own there, but man, it's a tough area. If you buy one building, even if you gold plated, it's not going to go up in value. So you need to buy a bunch. So we found eight buildings and it was in an opportunity zone. We'd never done an opportunity zone deal. Well, our CPA had and our attorney had, and they were willing to teach us how it worked. And what year was this? When was that? This? Was 2020, okay. uh, right after the IRS guidance. So we were also comfortable taking some investor money and and going in. Didn't feel like cowboys doing it. 
Mm-hmm. And so, okay, now we we bought eight buildings and we fixed up a couple and we really beat our pro forma. Um, you know, so we didn't go play one building. We go played at eight and turned around the neighborhood a little bit. And these were substantial renovation deals. And so we doubled the basis of the building and, and it really worked well. So then we looked around and we said, okay, well, let's buy a couple more. So we bought four more buildings and those worked out really well. And then we looked around and we said, man, there's a lot of vacant land around here that's been vacant for 40 years and no developer in town realizes what we're doing. We'd never developed anything before. So we said, okay, let's go find a development partner. So we brought somebody in and um, first we bought five building sites. Then we bought two more building sites and all right, now we're developers. So now we have actually 21 uh, projects in Dallas that are just northeast of the Bishop Arts District, right by Lake Cliff Park, right by the new Southern Gateway Deck Park, right by downtown. And we're really excited about revitalizing this entire neighborhood. And, and it's going really well. And the it's also really exciting for us that as we've learned more and more about OZ, number one, the benefits are, are better than we expected. Uh, Number two, it really all fits within the spirit and the legislation of uh, the spirit and and the rule of the legislation. Um, look, we never would have done this deal but for Opportunity Zone. We wouldn't have taken the first step. Would we be building our 21st building? Yeah, probably without it. But we certainly wouldn't have done the first one. And And I think that's what's cool about this deal is it catalyzes areas it catalyzes the development of areas that would be stuck without it. And, and it's really neat to see that. And um, I've seen it in other places too. And it's so good for, for cities and towns and big and small um, to have these properties put back on the tax rolls. I mean, think about the property tax value of this area that had been close to zero for 40 years. And now all of a sudden we're going to create a thousand units. Um, it's pretty awesome. So yeah, that's, that's what we're up to now. We've now raised about 65 million bucks, um, for multiple projects. We're also doing one in San Antonio now, uh, which is an affordable deal. Um, but it's, it's been a lot of fun and we've expanded our scope to, to looking for deals in Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, as well as kind of a two hour circle around Dallas. So we're, we're enjoying it. And OZ is about 90% of what we're focused on. Very good. And how are you raising capital for these deals? And it's kind of a loaded question. And by, by raising capital, I mean, you know, from whom are you raising equity? Do you have any debt in the deal as well? Yeah. Do you have project specific qualified opportunity funds that you've set up for investors to come into? Or is it a multi-asset qualified opportunity fund that deploys to all of the projects you're working on to tell, tell me all of the nitty gritty, all of those, details of, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. everything you just said we've done. Um, okay. So from day one, I mentioned our attorney was kind of a, uh, an early adopter and actually like really brilliantly set up our very first deal. Um, so our very first deal was eight buildings. Each building was in a single asset LLC that was disregarded and owned by a QOZB holding company. Um, the QOZB is where the pref and promote live and the QOZB, even on that very first deal, the QOZB is owned by seven opportunity zone funds. Um, so we have 
individuals, high net worth individuals that had their own funds, they're investors in the QOZB. We set up a project specific opportunity zone fund that individual investors came into for that deal. Um, and that's really been the model for all of our deals going forward is that the project has a QOZB. We take investment from individual OZ funds and we will set up an OZ fund to take money from individuals. Got it. Now, do you also have one large all-encompassing QOF that that deploys capital into all of the different QOZBs or have you not gone that route with a multi-asset fund? We have not gone that route. Um, we've set up several OZ funds that are invested in multiple deals. Um, so we did five development deals at the same time and we funded all those with one QOF, right? But yep. we have yet to, to raise money for anything where the deal was unknown at that point in time. Got it. Okay. Well, I think you've answered all my questions there on on uh, where your investments are coming from. Very interesting. Always, I, I love asking that question because I, I get a slightly different answer <laughs> from just about everybody, but they're they're more or less the same, even though they're all kind of slightly different. Yep. Um, well, one thing you mentioned in your in one of your previous answers, Barrett, was adhering to both the spirit and the rule of the legislation. And I know I I, I became aware a few weeks ago of a big Twitter thread that you started uh, near the beginning of December that highlights a lot of successful Opportunity Zone projects that would not have been possible without that Opportunity Zone legislation, that new tax policy that was, of course, signed into law at the end of 2017. Uh, that Twitter thread got picked up and highlighted on a big EIG and Novogratic webinar uh that they that they did highlighting the 2022 year-end recap about a month back that's how i found out about it, by the way um by the way i'll make sure to link to this twitter thread that we're discussing in the show notes for today's episode uh but barrett what why did you start that twitter thread why is it important and what kind of response have you gotten from it on twitter sure um i've been approached by a few people um including uh, spoken with EIG at that point and spoken with a few other people about the the legislation that was pending last year didn't pass now it's going to be reintroduced but just talking about hey how can we change hearts and minds about about opportunity zone how can we introduce it to more people and it didn't really get a great response um not that I got a negative response just didn't get any good ideas and I'm really active on Twitter, have, have been active on Twitter now for a little over a year, and have come to understand what kind of gets attention and what doesn't, how do you get other people's attention. But I've also become pretty good friends with 20 plus other Opportunity Zone developers, a whole lot of investors. Um, and, and so I said, okay, well, what can I do here that, that works? Um, and so behind the scenes, I did quite a bit of work to make that thread get as much attention as it did. And I reached out to a whole bunch of my development buddies and said, hey, I'm going to post something and I want you to reply with your development and a reason why it's important for OZ or a reason why it revitalized a neighborhood or whatever. And so I posted mine and in the photo of mine, I tagged Senator Ron White and Senator Scott's, <laughs> you know, all the senators that were on, on Senate Finance Committee. Uh, as well as the mayor of Dallas, my city councilman, a whole bunch of other people. 
Um, and and then all of a sudden, and it looked totally organic to to you, um, but you know these developers from Florida and Ohio and North Carolina and Utah and California and Oregon, they all started posting their deals. So now over the next twelve hours, um, we had. 25 and then people who i didn't know started joining in as well which was amazing then it but, did start turning into yeah, an organic yeah then it did get a little organic. started snowballing right yeah but the other amazing thing so the bottom line is it got uh hundreds of thousands of impressions a whole bunch of likes uh which was fantastic uh got mentioned by eig i got the attention of senator scott which was amazing um I didn't dream that anything I did on Twitter would get a senator's attention. Um, it actually impressed my wife, which is rare. Anything I do on <laughs> that Twitter. That might be the most important. Yeah, exciting, right? Um, but I, I think the the really cool thing that it highlighted was like, look, this OZ stuff actually is doing important neighborhood changing, neighborhood catalyzing development. And that never gets talked about in the Wall Street Journal. It never gets talked about in the New York Times. But we were able to highlight it in a way that did get people's attention. And that was a really cool thing to do. Um, the other thing is there were hundreds of comments. And I've looked again. I haven't found a, a negative one yet. How often do you see 20, 30 developers post pictures of their projects and not see a negative comment? It That blew me away. Um, so it was a really fun thing to do. Got great feedback, obviously. And um yeah, I don't know. It it came together organically, <laughs> but not. Yeah, no, it was a remarkable Twitter thread. And as I mentioned, I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes for today's episode. And I do think it's really important that we continue uh, to, to highlight that Twitter thread and other stories of successful Opportunity Zones projects. As you mentioned, the OZ legislation, uh, OZ reform legislation that was introduced last April did not end up getting passed toward the end of last year. Uh, the, the, the Congress ended up passing a, an omnibus bill that did not include any tax extenders in it, unfortunately. And, and we're hopeful that the legislation gets reintroduced in this new session of Congress that just began uh, about a week ago. We finally have a Speaker of the House as of last week. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're hoping that, that the OZ reform legislation gets reintroduced and, and passed eventually in this session of Congress. Hopefully this year, uh, if not next year, I, these, these things tend to take a little while to get extended though. Uh, but but that just goes to show that it's still very important, the work that you're doing, Barrett, in terms of advocating for opportunity zones with, with mayors, with senators, with other congressmen and other policymakers and other policy influencers. It's, it's important that we keep uh, our foot on the accelerator pedal uh, and hopefully we get OZ reform legislation passed sooner rather than later. I feel like I've been saying that for the last eight months, but it's true because <laughs> um, we do need this thing to get extended. Otherwise, it's a perishable incentive that's going to run out after the end of 2026. Anything else to add there, Barrett? No, I think that's right. I, I'm, what I said about the no negative comments, I think as a developer, and I think most other developers I know are pretty shy about sharing much about what they're doing, yeah. right? I mean, look, we're not popular folks. Uh, in general. But I think in this case, uh, be a little less shy because what you share can have a positive impact on neighborhoods, uh, but certainly at the government level, 
reach out to your senator, reach out to your congressman, reach out to your city councilman and share with them if you're not willing to share in on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but but don't be shy about telling someone what you're doing and why you're doing it, because I think it could end up having an enormous impact for all OZ participants. I agree. I would say just to add on to that, I think it's okay to brag about your OZ project because it, it 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 should, especially if it's successful and has community impact. Uh, they, those aren't the types of stories that get picked up by the Wall Street Journal, the New York no. Times. Uh, they 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 like to pick up on on the more uh, I don't know uh, outrageous types of OZ projects. But those are actually the the rare case, the exception rather than the norm. The norm, I think. There are the types of projects that you link to in your Twitter thread. Uh, well, Barrett, uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. We've run out of time, but before we go, if anybody is interested in connecting with you or learning more about Savoy Equity Partners, how can they do that? Where can our listeners and viewers go to learn more about you and Savoy Equity Partners? Sure. Well, I hope they've learned now that I'm active on Twitter. Um, also, uh, Savoy Equity Partners has a LinkedIn page and and just a regular website, SavoyEquityPartners.com. So yeah, Anyone who wants to connect, I would I would love to, to hear from you. Terrific. And of course, for our listeners and viewers out there today, I will, as always, have show notes available. As I've mentioned, those show notes for this episode will be available at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And I'll have links to all of the resources that Barrett and I discussed on today's show. I'll make sure to link to that Twitter thread, as well as Savoy Equity Partners LinkedIn page and webpage. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Barrett, thanks again for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.